For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. By the way, before I do this uh, podcast, which you're about to listen to, the bio, I just want to throw something out there. Uh, I have a relative, I guess, who's got to get here next week for a chasana. She lives in Israel, and she just had a baby not long ago, and she's having trouble getting a, I think, a passport uh, for the baby, which is preventing her from coming. And I don't know the any of you know the State Department of Politicians or anything like this who, who have any suggestions of how you get very quickly a passport for a, a, a newborn um, to come to America. That requires knowledge of the American passport system. If you have any, uh, you know, uh, ideas or uh, contacts along those lines, along those lines, uh, please email me. I can forward to her um, to help her, as they say, for her to get here in time for for, for the wedding. Uh, that's just if you want to do a tova. Uh, I just say it by way of preface, and now I'll go straight to the regular podcast. Hi, um, it's Hanukkah night, <clears throat> the first night. You know, it's weird, I did a talk this afternoon, a podcast, and somehow or other I lost it. So uh, it never happened to me before, so I'm going to try to do it again if I can. Um, this bio is being sponsored uh, by the Meyer family in, in um, Flatbush, by Howard J. Meyer. And uh, indeed, I do hope, as he says up here, to see him when I get back from Baltimore, or when I get back from Israel, back in Baltimore, we'll run into each other, connect the name and the face. And he's sponsoring this, uh, Zecher Nishma Sari Wolf, who was murdered. Um, perhaps he followed in the in the Jewish news uh, not not so long ago. A young fellow, uh, in, when he was working in Washington, D.C., was a student of mine once. And he also uh, had one year as a student, and one year he... He like shadowed a kid, you know, help a special needs kid who was a very uh, special person. Um, so it's a terrible uh, tragedy. I don't think they found the, the killer yet. You know, it's only Shiva World and those kind of places, and but you know they're still looking for it or whatever. So um, this is Lili and the Shmoso. Uh <clears throat> Since it's and I do, this is going to be a first of several. I I hope to do about Hanukkah um, if I can find the sponsors for it. Uh, since it's supposed to be the, the bio today, I figured, why should I do a rabbi? Let me do Judah Maccabee. Nobody knows anything about him exactly from the biographical perspective. Um, although we hear the name. And anyway, without any further ado, let's jump into this. Here is a person, Judah Maccabee, Judah Maccabee. I think that's his name. The reason I say he thinks that's his name is because the funny business is that he does not exist in rabbinical literature, but he does exist in pseudo-rabbinical literature. Is it the word Judah Maccabee, Judah Maccabee, or any of those words? It's not in any Gemara, any Chazal. It's not in any Medrash or anything like that, to the best of my knowledge. You know, Medrash Rabbah, Medrash Tachuma, Pirkei that kind of stuff. Instead, um, it's in the two apocryphal books of the first book of Maccabees, the second book of Maccabees, which is part of the apocryphal, known as Farm Chitzonium, which is not part of the Torah literature. That's number one. And from there, it uh, extended to Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who, uh, you know, used both the first book of Maccabees, second book of Maccabees, which are not identical at all. 
They're quite different stories. Uh, if I have a chance, I'll talk about Second Book of Maccabees later on Hanukkah sometime or other. And uh, so you can read about Judah Maccabee in the Book of Josephus, which most from Jews didn't, didn't do. Or you can do it in Yossi Fun, which I said a week ago, two weeks ago, was a knockoff of, uh, of uh, what do you call it, Josephus. So it's a pseudo-literature, you understand? It's a pseudo-history. Uh, so notice he's not getting it from like a Gemara or something like that. So if you go back to Makar Rishon, Chashm uh, appears in Chazal, and Matis Yo, you find the Chazal here or there. Uh, interestingly, but not the sons and not Yehuda. Uh, and yet, he's at the center of the Hanukkah story in the Book of Maccabees 1 and 2. And so, I'm going to try to uh, put together uh, the what, what emerges from the biography of this most important person, and probably least understood, I imagine, uh, which emerges out of the, especially the first Book of Maccabees and partially from the second, which ends up in the knowledge zone of the from world from uh, Yosifon, and also from the Megillus Antiochus, which is another uh, pseudo-historical uh, work, uh, which a lot of people believed in. And there you have a slightly different uh, story of, of Yudah Maccabee. But again, that's where you would have heard the name. So where does the from Jew hear the word Maccabee? Either in the Megillus Antiochus or in the Yosifon. I don't think they got it from the Sephardim uh, Kitsonium which were only translated to Hebrew not that long ago. So uh, it's just interesting. And yet, as, as I say, there's no question that he lies at the heart of the whole story. Uh, as we kind of know, uh, Judah Maccabee, um, I mean, the name itself is, is, comes from the, from the, from the, uh, the book of the Maccabees, uh, and it doesn't say what it means. It's from the Greek, you understand? The term Yehuda Maccabee it's not found in Hebrew. It's found originally in the uh, two books in Sephardic Concerning, which are in Greek. Now, it's true that the first book of Maccabees clearly was originally written in Hebrew, but we don't have that. Okay? Even if we had it in Hebrew, that wouldn't make it part of the Torah, but we don't have that. So all you have is the Greek, which you doi makaboi, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it is what it is. But we're talking about, obviously, somebody who lived in the time of the Antiochian persecutions, uh, in the first book of Maccabees, they don't go into details about the Hellenists, but in the second book of Maccabees, they sure as heck do. And therefore, we're talking about somebody who lived in strange times when the Hellenist uh, tr movement arose in Judea. And uh, that means people dropped Judaism and switched to Hellenism, which is a different religion, uh, Shmad. And we don't know how large they were, but it was not, was not a small group. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. I happened to see this morning, for a certain reason, I looked in the, uh, you know, there's three or four books from Herschel Schechter put out on Rabbi Salvechik, and one's, one's called Mepnini Arav, Mepnini Arav, and I'm looking at what he says, Rabbi Salvechik, about Hanukkah, and he makes the, and he's talking about um, difference in Hanukkah and Purim, you know, that kind of thing that rabbis always talk about, and the point he wants to say over here is that um, there was a big period of Elavavus, a big disunity among the Jews, and many of them went for Hellenism. Uh, I'm reading from what he says, uh, That's true. That it wasn't so much a war against the Greeks, although it sure was that, but it was primarily a war between one set of Jews and the other. But here's the point, and, and 
How come you don't find this in the Gemara? Says uh, Rabbi Salvechik. In other words, Gemara says, Yeah, probably it was the Hellenists that did it. You hear what I said? Which, by the way, answers all those kashas and tosas, things like that. How can a guy be Matami and this and that and the other? I mean, really, 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 from the historical point of view, one of the Greeks they were worried about was the Hellenists, and, and they could be Matami to things they used for Avodazar, or whatever they did, or they on purpose were Matami. A Jew can be Matami. That's something, but, you know, you won't find that in Talmudic-type literature or in the commentaries of Talmudic literature because they're not historical, you know, they're textual. Now, um, that's the nature of, uh, you know, the, the rabbinic literature. But the point, he, in, in Rabbi Salvechik's opinion, the reason it says, is because uh, is because that he wants to say that the Chazal didn't like to say that Rova, the Jewish or a lot of the Jewish people, switched to Hellenism or Azar. So they rather put it in terms of the Goyim. But in reality, it was the Jews. This is a salvation talk, not me. That when it says in Alanisim, it was the evil Greek kingdom, it doesn't mean the Goyim. It means the Hellenist Jews, right? who kicked the religion. Now here he makes quite a statement, which I don't know what he has a basis for saying it. It, it is possible. It's quite possible, but there's no actual proof of this. And that is, he wants to argue, again, this is Rabbi Salvechik talking, not me, that a majority of the Jews living in Judea converted to Hellenism. No, they worshipped the, the Greek gods and all that sort of thing. Obviously, because of either uh, positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, uh, that's quite a statement we just said. Most Jews uh, dumped Judaism. The Maccabees represented a min- an Orthodox minority. I mean, you know, I remember I think the Miller and the others don't hold that way, um, but uh, but it, it could very well be true. I'd say again, this this is a suggestion by uh, Rabbi Salvechik, the way he reads everything. Okay. That, you know, in other times in Jewish history, small groups converted, but now the whole seaboard converted, except for um, except for the Maccabees and their followers. We'll never know the actual historical reality, but we do know that they lived through the times of the terrible persecutions, which you can read the details of in the first, and especially in the second book of Maccabees, where they gives, give you the gruesome details. And I'm sure you've heard, it's not the first time, you know, they threw the women off the cliff who who uh, permitted circumcision and they pulled the guy apart because he wouldn't eat the treif and the Khan and the seven sons, they fried them alive in pans and all this kind of junk. Okay, so let it be, fine. Now, um, that's how the story began. And then, of course, as we kind of know, um, the revolt broke out. Let's go with the first book of Maccabees without belaboring the business. And let's say the revolt broke out in Modin when the when the Greeks came to set up a uh, an idol there. Let's go with that story. And so according to this, it was the old man Matis Yohu, who, uh, who seems to have been a Kohen in the base of Mignus at one point. Never says it exactly, but it sort of seems that way. He was from the family of Yoyariv. He moved away from Jerusalem, settled in Modin. So if he was living in Shalim, he obviously had worked in base of Mignus, but during... 
if you follow the book of Maccabees 1 and 2, at a certain point, before the Hanukkah story, way before the Hanukkah story, Antiochus, for a certain reason, came to Jerusalem and massacred everybody. And then another general came and followed it up. And said he either killed everybody or sold them as slaves. I'm talking about 150, 200,000 Jews. And uh, you know what I said? That's a big number. And uh, therefore, the city of Yerushalayim, as I've said in, in previous podcasts, you can listen from last year or whatever, two years ago, whatever, the city of Jerusalem was basically a ghost town during the Maccabean Revolt and first stages. And the only thing you had over there, I mean, the base of Migdash also was left empty. Uh, you know, the Greeks didn't use it. They, 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 they did it once or twice to use it for our purposes a few times, but then not. Uh, and uh, there was there was the Acre there, the, the citadel nearby, which had the Hellenists and the Greek soldiers in there. Uh, but that was it. And from people, whoever ran away, in the hills and the mountains and the caves, you know the story that they burned the people in the caves because they wouldn't be with Chal Shabbos and all that stuff. And so by the time the story reaches its uh, a dramatic point, so we're told that Matzio was living in Modi and he had five sons. Uh, Yehuda was not the oldest. It says over here, John, whose name was Gadi, Simon named Tasi, Judah called Maccabee, Eleazar called Oran, and Jonathan called Apis. Apis is a bull. Oran, I forget what it means. But it doesn't say what Maccabee means. Each guy had like a cognomen, you know, an extra name. Uh, we do not know what that means. Um, there are many different theories, you know, it means a hammer, this, that, but we don't know. I emphasize the word no. Now, the point of the matter is that he, that Amatisio started the revolt by killing the Greek guy. I'm going again with the story that you have in the book of Maccabees. And then he ran away to the hills and began a guerrilla warfare. And um, in fact, this may be one of the early examples of guerrilla warfare because this is a kind of warfare in which you hit and run and uh, you collect your weapons from the enemy dead and you hit at night. And the idea is to terrorize, is it, you know, it's a guerrilla warfare, terrorism warfare is, is about psychology, to terrorize the enemy. In this case, the enemy were the uh, the Hellenists. And indeed, it says, you know, they would come down in the middle of the night, and they would, um, what do you call it, they would uh, kill the Hellenists who were there, and they would uh, circumcise the children that were in the town who were uncircumcised, of course, and things like that tore down the Avodazar altars, and they pursued the contemptuous ones, and as it says in the book, the work prospered in their hands. So they began a, a, a guerrilla warfare primarily against the Hellenists, who therefore had to withdraw from the countryside because it wasn't safe, and go back to the fortified cities where there were Greek garrisons. It's exactly like you do in guerrilla warfare down to Vietnam and down till today. That's how you do it. But then Montesio died, and the story is he said that... Um, of the five sons, even though he's not the oldest, Judah is the best one in battle, and therefore he should lead. Now, this is just interesting. It seems that Matisio had been a Kohen in Beis Migdash. We do not know how old his children were. Were they young? Were they middle-aged? Uh, we do not know. Had they ever been Tohanim serving in Beis Migdash or not? Uh, did they have any experience with this sort of thing? Or, you know, did all the persecutions happen when they were young and they just ran away? But there are Kohanim, as you know, and how come Judah was, uh, you know, battle-worthy or something like that? The answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Mistama, since they started guerrilla warfare, and he probably showed some talent, I guess, so the father said he should be the leader. 
And so when the father died, he became the leader of the guerrillas. And then he started to fight the uh, the Greek armies. Uh, first, they misjudged, as often is the case, uh, the threat that they have in their hands. They sent a small army against Apollonius, and he was able to wipe him out. And then they sent Ciron, and uh, with, a, with a somewhat smaller, I'm um, sorry, somewhat bigger army, and Judah Maccabee defeated him. Now we start to see, when you read the book of Maccabees, that he had a natural talent for uh, war and for leadership. Okay? And, and he was a from guy. Because it says that when he fought against Siron, uh, I'm reading from the book, when his men saw how great the enemy expedition was against him, the Jews said, how can we win? We're so few in number. How are we going to be able to fight against so great a multitude? And we haven't eaten all day, we're faint. And Judah replied, it's an easy thing for, to be hemmed, for many to be hemmed in by a few. In other words, it doesn't matter how big the army is. A small army can definitely beat a bigger one. There's no difference in the sight of heaven to save by many or few. Victory in battle does not uh, d- depend on the size of an army, but from strength that comes from heaven. They are advancing against us full of violence and lawlessness to destroy us, our wives and our children, and to plunder us. We are fighting for our lives and our laws. That's the Torah, the halachas. God himself will shatter them before us. As for you, do not be afraid of them. You know, like Atem Atapreshum. And then he charged, he drove at them suddenly, and the enemy was crushed. In other words, he led the attack. See, he wasn't one of these armchair generals. This is part of the charisma. You get it? He knew how to speak to them. And I don't know if these speeches are literally true, because in these old books, they always put these fancy speeches in the, in, in the mouths of heroes or villains. But if, even if the words aren't literally so, that's Barach, what he said. And the main point is that after he put his money where his mouth is, after he made the speech, he said, okay, I'm, I'm just attacking. Whoever wants to come with me, come with me, Akarai. And that is very charismatic. So even though the guy had no experience in the sense of not going to West Point or anything like that, uh, and he you know wasn't a professional soldier, but he had a natural. Sometimes you find in history that some people just had natural. Uh, comes to mind Oliver Cromwell, people like that, had no, no experience whatsoever, and he turned out to be a natural. So, um, and he knew how to talk to Jews. You know, they're coming against us, but Rabbi Madmatim to me about Torim and so forth and so on. And he beat them. And Antiochus, the story goes on to say, then sends a bigger army under uh, three generals to wipe out the Jews. And again, they're coming at them in three angles. And this is the Battle of Emos, which I have did a podcast on in the past, I'm sure. And uh, that was due to Maccabees' uh, military masterpiece. So this shows you that he wasn't simply a charismatic guy in the battlefield, but he knew how to plot strategy and you know tactics and things like that. Again, how he, how he had this... It seems to have just been unnatural. Now, I do want to say that if you read closely, it says that the enemy, the Syrians heard that Judah mustered a levy and a company of faithful men about him, along with others accustomed to going out to war. So, little by little, already early on, once he started hitting the Greeks and beating them uh, and killing the Hellenists, he attracted a, you know... Uh, a, a, a certain uh, element to follow him, uh, including those accustomed to going to war, which means XGIs. Now, where did he get Jewish XGIs that had served in armies all the rest? I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer to this. But you see, every Jew at 22, you know, he's like the, the JDL or something. He got these guys and said, we're, 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 we're going to fight. We're going to take these guys down. And so he did attract uh, all kinds of Jews who, by definition, 
were from in the sense that they're fighting to save the the, the, the Jewish religion, as it were. But, um, you know, now they're going to be attacked by a much, much larger army. And he does a very firm thing. Notice, he, he understands the Jewish firm mentality, and he does follow the Chumash. Because it says, when Judah and his brothers saw that misfortunes were increasing and armies were encamping on their borders, so notice the three Greek armies, Syrian armies, were massing against them. Aware of what the king had said when he ordered his men to destroy the people completely, because Antiochus had said, wipe out the Jews and give their land away to others. You hear what I said? Wipe them out. Then Judah and his men said to each other, let us repair the evil fortune and fight for our people in sanctuary. Notice we're going to go down fighting. Uh, and before that, they go to Daman. The congregation gathered together to be ready for war and to pray and seek mercy and compassion. Uh, which, you know, uh, mercy and compassion would be chesed rachmim and boy rachmi. And they went to Mitzpah opposite Jerusalem because Israel formerly had a place there. So this takes you back to Shmuel Aleph, which Shmuel and Nabi gathered everybody in Mitzvah. It's a very firm thing to Davin to fight the Plishim. He's So they knew this, and they're going to have like a repeat. So this is a very religious type business, and they know they're, they're probably going to their death, and they, oh, they fasted that day. So I mean, you know, before the battle comes, which is going to be tomorrow, you, you have a tinus, which is a very Jewish thing, and they put on sackcloth and put ashes on the head and tore their garments. So they had like a tshuva session, you know, because these are signs of Avelis, as you know, tore Kriya. And then this shows you what a clever guy he was in terms of a general and a charisma because they took a safer Torah and spread it out on which the Greeks had drawn likenesses of their idols. So they found what you and I would be called a de- desecrated uh, Sefer Torah or Sefer Torahs. Now, nothing makes a Jew so angry or should make the Jew so angry as you see if the enemy took, uh, you know, something sacred to us, especially a Sefer Torah, and, uh, you know, abused it or mocked it or desecrated it. And basically, it's like, you know, a red flag in front of a bull. He wants to get his men angered up against the Greeks. And they brought out other things there, and they said, there's no base amigash, how can we do the Trumas and Mises and, and Bikurim? See how the enemy come against us. How will we be able to withstand our ground before them unless you help us, O Lord? That was the dominating session. They didn't have formal feel like, you know, Shmonesri and all that, but they had, you know, basically, you don't have to be a, a, a great poet to speak to the situation. You know, help us, O Lord, because we're about to go into battle. Then they sounded the trumpets and shouted with a loud voice, which means... They had the Chatotzers. That's a din. That's one of the six hundred thirteen mitzvahs. That you know, when you have a war or something like that, but Saharios come with the Katan Bachatzers, and they shouted with a loud voice. So, in other words, it's a davening. And then Judah appointed. Um, I'm reading the English now. Colonels, captains, lieutenants, and sergeants. That's what it says in Greek. You and I know that means sorry, alafim, sorry, meos, sorry, chamishim, sorry, asaros. And he ordered those who were building houses, betrothed the women, and planting vineyards. Or was scared to go back at home in accordance with the Torah. You know, all that. So that's just smart. Because since he's outnumbered anyway, what's the point of having 5,000 men in the face? And a thousand are cowards. Better to have 4,000 men and none of them are cowards. You understand? So, Or somebody thinking about his new bride, something like that. You know, you got to be concentrating on the business of fighting. And then they marched off to the enemy, and they, and they, what do you call it? And he said, better for us to die in battle than to look on the tragedies of our nation and sanctuary. Whatever is the will of heaven, that shall we do. 
and he proceeded to win a stunning victory over them, okay, which I'm not going to go over again. So the result was that the strategy of the Maccabean revolt is re revealed over here, that every time the Greeks send in an army, which basically was to relieve Jerusalem, um, what do I mean relieve Jerusalem? If the Maccabees or the rebels, the guerrillas, are active in the mountains, they can block anybody trying to come and bring uh, to get into the city of Yerushalayim. And if you do it successfully enough, you can starve out or conquer whatever's in Yerushalayim and then take it back for the Jews, and they can recapture the temple and then fortify it and hold it against the Greeks. That was the strategy of the of the war. Uh, and the only problem is the Greeks had endless numbers, and so uh, after this victory, the following year, Lysias, the Greek general, gathered 60,000 men, and they had another big battle at Beit Sur. And once again, Judah delivers a prayer. Again, I don't know if it's exactly these words of prayer, but he davened, okay? You know, remember David, David and Goliath, and remember Yonason uh, ben Shaul, remember that he killed everybody in Michmash and all this, and melt the boldness of destruction, cast him down with a sword, and so on and so forth. In other words, he gave him a pep talk, and then they fell on each other, and he killed 5,000 of the enemy, which means that Lysias, uh, who saw the increasing boldness of Judah and how ready they were to live or die nobly, he marched back home to come back the following year with an even larger army. It is at this point that Hanukkah takes place, because now that they defeated this repeated attempts at his Greeks to to penetrate into Judea and get to Jerusalem. Uh, so the Jews can now move to Yerushalayim because nobody's there except in the citadel, except in the Acre. So think about the old city and think about the fact that it's abandoned for the, for the most part. The base of Migdash is abandoned for the most part. And that's where the Hanukkah story takes place, which I'm not going to cause over. I've done it in the past. Okay? Now my point is, you say, well, that's the end of the story and Judah becomes the hero. But it's not true. Again, I did last year, right after Hanukkah, Judah Maccabee finds out that there's pogroms going on throughout Palestine, including Avery Yardin, and he launches a bunch of... Knows, what does he do when, when Hanukkah's over? He goes back to the business of fighting, except now it's not against the Seleucid Empire, it's against the local junk. There was an Arab tribe, he says, that he shut them in their towers and camped against them, swore to destroy them, completely burned the towers and all the people in them. He crossed over against Ammon, and fought many battles with them and crushed before him, and the enemy gathered. There's a whole long thing that I did last year when he was like Stonewall Jackson. He marched up and down, in and out, real fast everywhere, wiped out cities, and he saved all the Jews in one gigantic um, Entebbe operation, which involved defeating the enemies repeatedly, especially in Avery Yardin, and his brothers did so in, in the northern part of Israel. Well, it's not that hard to understand. By the time we're talking about after Hanukkah, after, meaning after the base of Migdash was recaptured and it was Hanukkah's HaMizbeach, all that stuff, the soldiers in his army are veterans. They've been through a lot of campaigns. They have fought the best Greeks they got against them. So they're like, you know, Cromwell's Ironsides. They know discipline, they know tactics, and when they go up against this Greek junk over here, and I say junk, it wasn't the professional armies of the Seleucids, it was like Timotheus and the local Arabs in the Abraiardine, or the Edomites, you know, south in the uh, Hebron area, or this uh, Arab tribe over here, they got no chance against the Maccabean army. Even if it's not large, it's highly experienced and disciplined. And, you know, and they were ready to listen to orders. That's why, for example, it says they uh, they wanted to go back 
with all the Entebbe uh, uh, rescuees, and some town blocked them. And uh, Judah, an army turned back by way of Basura, took the city, killed every male with the edge of the sword, took their spoil, burned it down, and then did the same thing in city after city. And then he beat the uh, Timotheus. I mean, he had men that he could just give an order, and they would take and they would follow it. He crossed a river before they did. You have to read it in in all great detail. My point is like this: uh, this is not the story of Chanu Kafhei in the sense that oh, they finally won the final battle, the war was all over, hail the conquering hero like in Handel's uh, Judas Maccabeus, and then now they could sit down and uh, you know have Hanukkah treats. You know, and and they and they celebrated the the Hanukkah and Mizbech and and everything they lived happily ever after, sort of like George Washington after 1783. No way, uh, it was a temporary respite in the fight against the Seleucid Empire and against the local Hellenists. And during that temporary respite, like a mailman's holiday, he took up a whole bunch of battles against all these local, I guess you call them Palestinian type groups, um, throughout the area of Eretz Yisrael of the Shomron and the Galil and the Yardin and the South. This is what he was doing on his day off, okay? Now, um, yeah, I just listen to this. Judah and his brothers went out and waged war against the Bnei Esau and destroyed Hebron and its villages, raised the fortifications, burned the towers around them. He marched to the Philistines, what we call the Gaza Strip, went to Marisa. Um, Judah turned to Ashdod, pulled down the altars, burned up the carved images of God, plundered the cities, and returned back to Judah. So, no, he was a tough guy. Now, he's asserting over here, you know, his the Jewish power because he got an army that came together organically to resist the Greek, the, the Seleucid armies, which are now going to come back. <clears throat> because what happens during this time is that Antiochus IV dies and his son, a young son, takes over. And uh, the Hellenists, well, and... and Judah realizes since the old king is gone and it's a young son, maybe he can hop around and capture the the citadel in Yerushalayim, which was the main goal. And then they have complete control of Yerushalayim. And the people in the citadel send secret messengers to the new king saying, help us. And he comes to help them with a gigantic army. And what can I tell you? Uh, it's, it, it, they're irresistible. Uh, Judah Maccabee has an, a battle against him at Beit Zechariah, and he kind of loses. This is when Eleazar gets killed in a battle with the elephant on top of him. and You know that. And that means, really, that Judah Maccabee was kind of like defeated and had to withdraw to Yerushalayim. And it was, by the way, a Shemitah year and so forth. And next thing you know, and I'm talking about a year or so after, after Hanukkah, the Greeks are back, and they're surrounding Yerushalayim, or specifically the surrounding Beit Zechariah, with the Maccabees inside, and it ain't push it, you know, and they're starving, and Judah Maccabee was about, you know, was about to give in or something like that, when they had big mazel, because the civil war broke out in Syria, and and the, and the Greek army had to withdraw to take care of Syrian events. This day was uh, considered one of the Miguel's Tinas dates. I forget the, the the exact date over there. You can look it up if you want to see it. Like twenty eight. Uh, uh, Shvat or something like that, and uh, yeah, it is a twenty-eight Shvat. And when it says Antiochus withdrew, it means Antiochus, the young king. And so my point is that you see, Hanukkah was not the end of the fight. Meanwhile, 
uh, a new guy came aboard, a member of the royal family, Demetrius, and killed the young Antiochus. He took over, and he will be the king for the rest of the life of Judah Maccabee, this guy Demetrius. And he was a tough son of a gun. He sent a big general named Bacchides, who comes to uh, with a Nachan invasion of Judea, along with a Hellenistic-type Kohen named Alchemist, Alchemist, Yakim, they call him in the Gemara. Uh, if it's the same Yakim, probably is. And uh, I shouldn't say that, Alchimus, who, as we shall see now, very quickly um, recaptures the base of Migdash in the temple. Do you hear what I just said? So people don't realize this, uh, that the Greeks invaded again and again, and Judah was not strong enough to fight him back. Uh, he has to withdraw from Jerusalem, the Greeks recaptured the base of Migdash. They put in their guy, Alchemist, as coin Gadol. However, this time, as best as you can tell, they did not repeat exactly what Antiochus had done. They did not turn the base of Migdash into the Makam of Odizara and uh, a whorehouse like the, the, the Greeks did with the Sarega, according to the Chazal, and uh, pig offerings and, you know, uh, idols and so forth and so on. Uh, instead, they had like a reform rabbi, let's call it like that. Alchemist, who seems to have run the base of Migdash according to the regular Jewish way, even though really he's subservient to the Greeks. So it's a funny situation, and uh, the Maccabees are not fooled. And uh, but here comes the funny part, uh, and uh, which tells us a lot about Judah Maccabee. Now comes, and this is my reading and my interpretation. Uh, for many years. Uh, by this time, Judah Mecca has become a Zionist. By that I mean that originally the Jews were just a province of the Greek Empire. The Seleucids, before that the Ptolemies, before that the Alexander, before that the Persians. They're always a, a, a province of somebody else's empire. And, okay, that's how it goes. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah, they have this uh, prayer where they say, we're, we're avonim to the Malchi Paris. Okay. But at least we have a base of English, we have religious freedom, that's enough. It's not ideal, but it's enough. Uh, okay. But now, this revolt broke out. And the Greeks, and especially the Hellenist Jews, are bitter enemies and will kill you if you, if you, if you don't watch them. And so when the revolt broke out, the uh, implication was that you're not simply having a fight to save yourselves from being forced to switch religions, it's not only a fight to have the right to keep Shabbos and Brismila and Rosh Chodesh and all that other stuff, but it's a fight, and it is that, but in addition to that, it's a fight to establish a state of Israel, a, a principality of Judea. Why do I say that? Ain't braver. You cannot trust these guys. You can't lower your, 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 your weapons and say, you know, we'll go back under you, just let us keep our religion. Because that seems to have been the strategy that the Greeks now said, okay, the mistake was made. We won't make that mistake again. From now on, you can keep your religion. You can keep Shabbos, keep Kashas, keep Taras Mishpach, and all the rest of it, and just go back under us and be subservient and pay taxes, and, and bygones will be bygones. Now, many from Jews, especially, it says the Hasidim, that's just the, there was a, you know, the, the real Frumis at that time, Asidoi, it's in the Greek uh, text. It, 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 they were like Natura Karta, which means, if you if it's a fight about 
Shmiris Mitzvahs, okay, then aim braver, then they'll fight. If it's a fight about establishing a state of Israel, no, that they don't want to do. Uh, and so they wanted to make a compromise. And Judah Maccabee is already saying over here, uh, we didn't plan to establish a state of Israel, but that's what we got to do. So he's merged not only as a general and a charismatic warrior, but as a political leader who basically is saying, I have to be the leader and the ruler of this group because who else is going to do it? And it's not what he started out to be. And he is a Kohen. Was he Kohen Gadol? It's strange. I mean, I'm raising a good question now. How did it work exactly when the Jews recaptured the base uh, uh, of Hanukkah and they did Hanukkah and Mizbeach, they, you know, fixed it up and made it ready for Judaism? I mean, who was the Kohen Gadol? It couldn't have been Judah Maccabee, but who else could it have been? The reason I say it couldn't be Judah Maccabee, he's busy fighting all the time. Did he have the title? I mean, it doesn't say so. So who actually ran the base of Mishra on a day-to-day -day basis? It's a good question I'm asking. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. But now, al comes back with the Greeks, and he's basically saying like this, you can do the Karbonos, you can do everything else, uh, but we should be under the, under, under the Seleucid Empire. And Judah Maccabee is saying, don't do that, you can't trust him. It's not that I'm, I'm in favor of Zionism in principle, but we have no choice. And the, the famous story in the book of Maccabees is that the Torah character went out and met with the Greeks, and the Greeks killed him. Bacchides killed him, he threw them in a cistern. Okay? Uh, which means that you see who the Greeks are. You, you, you know, the, no such thing as accepting their word. Because as soon as your guard is down, as soon as you put down your gun, they'll kill you or torture you. Uh, and the Greek general who installed him left, and Alchemist now strove, it says in the book, to retain the high priesthood. He wanted to be Kohen Gadol. Of course, the Frum didn't want that. All the troublemakers among the people gathered themselves to him, it says, meaning all the Hellenists came out of the woodwork and took possession of the land of Judah, causing great havoc in Israel. So now that Alchemist was back, regardless of whether or not he's following the Carbonos and that sort of thing, formally, in, in, in a formalistic way, they're going around and killing all the from, causing great havoc in Israel. When Judah, who obviously had to withdraw from Jerusalem because of the superior enemy force, uh, saw all the harm that Alchemist was doing, he went out to the frontiers around Judea and took revenge on the deserters, and they were prevented from going out in the country. Notice they started up the Jewish civil war again, so the Hellenists were killing the from, and the from under Judah Maccabee were killing the Hellenists. Big time. When Alchemist saw the Judah's member becoming strong, he perceived he couldn't stand against them, and so he went back to the king of the Syrians, of the uh, Greeks, and the king sends Nicanor with a big army to wipe out Judah Maccabee because of the request of Alchemist. And this is like three years or so, something like that, after uh, three or four years after Hanukkah. See, my point is not Hanukkah. Hey. It's not that they had Hanukkah and everything was okay, and Judah Maccabee lived ever after, happily ever after. He kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And the trouble is, it's like Israel and the Arabs. You cannot afford to lose once. If you lose once, you're doomed. They can afford to lose over and over again. And so you see, he keeps beating the Greeks. Nicanor, Yom Nicanor, which was on the 13th of Adar. That's why you know that Megillus Tynus, uh, I'm sorry, Tynus Esther is not a real Tynus. It used to be one of those Megillus Tynus dates that you're not allowed to fast. So um, that's the day that Judah Maccabee wiped out Nicanor's army and chopped off his head and so forth. Um, but that was just another battle that he won. The, the Greeks are going to send more. You understand? They're going to send more and more. And they never stop. And so you see that 
Yes, Hanukkah was a glorious event, but it was just an episode in a much longer war. And here we are three, four years later, and um, he's got to fight Nicanor now. Now, I told you, he had to fight through the Torah Karta, and he went his way, and he started establishing a state, uh, whether he's authorized to do so or not, based on the idea, ain't Brera, you can't trust the Greeks, we have no choice but to set up our own kingdom and rule ourselves, otherwise the enemy come and uh, torture us. Uh, and one of the things he does at this point is negotiate an alliance with the Romans, with Rome, which was far away, which was a useless alliance, but at least it makes you look like a state. You get what I'm saying? It makes you look like a state. Uh, how should I put it? It's like Israel today wants to be in the UN. The UN is a joke. In fact, it's worse than a joke. But if you're a country, you want to be in the UN, a member state of the UN. So you want to be a member state of the, you know, negotiate with the Romans. It is true the Ramban attacks uh, Judah Maccabee for doing this in Parsha Ba'ishlach. But all right, you know, the Ramban's coming from the Yaakov and Esau story. Uh, Judah Maccabee simply saying like this, listen, uh, I ain't going to be a Kohen Gadol in the regular sense of doing the Avoda. Uh, I ain't got no time for that. I don't even control the base of Megdosh. I'm hoping one day to get it back. We captured it once, but we lost it. Now maybe we'll get it back. I can tell you right now, my friends, that he never does get it back. Not in his lifetime. But this was his plan. And that's why he starts looking for alliances and politics and things like this. Now, Demetrius, the Greek king, says heck with all this. And he sends in uh, another large army under Bacchides and Alchemist. And uh, let's put it this way. They really massively how should I put it, uh, invade the country. Uh, and meanwhile, Judah Maccabee, uh, his men get scared. It's a Jewish army. And most of them flee, and he's only left with 800 men now in the Battle of Elasso. And the story that they give in the Book of Maccabees is that his own soldiers told him, look what it says, when Judah saw his army was dwindling away and that the battle was imminent, he was troubled in spirit because he had no time to gather them together. But he said, let us fight the enemy, maybe we'll win. His own men tried to dissuade him, saying, we have no chance of winning. Let us rather save ourselves now. We and our brothers will return to fight against them, we're too few. In other words, they said common sense to him. Uh, what's the whole shot of guerrilla war? What's the shot that we always win? Because we hit and run. Uh, the shot and hit and run means when you're faced with a large superior force, don't fight them because that's their advantage. Run away. And fight him when it's your advantage. That's what we've been doing until now. So if, what, if for whatever reason we're down to 800 men against 50,000, however many was in the Greek side, why do them the favor of fighting a battle today? Just run. You know, those who live and run away will fight another day. And according to this, Judah Maccabee answered, No, far be it from me that I should do such a thing to flee from them. If our time has come, let us die bravely for our brothers and not leave an accusation against our honor. I mean, I don't know if he said that. It makes no sense. It's it's the opposite of how he had acted until now. You understand? It's the opposite of how he had acted until now. Uh, uh, until now, he was very tactically wise. And as I said before, when you have a lot of guys on your side, you fight. When you have a few on your side and the advantage is not in your way, don't fight. For some reason over here, he says, no, I don't want to leave an accusation against our honor. That's a geisha way of thinking, you know, uh, to go down fighting nobly. And that is what happened, because the battle took place, he got killed. Okay? Now, um, battle took place, he got killed. 
Now this is, what I just read you is in the book of Maccabees, and it doesn't tell you all the details at all. As it says, the rest of the book of Acts of Judah and his battles exploits are not written down because there were too many. You understand? In other words, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, uh, how should I put it? Uh, he had a lot of other battles that we didn't even talk about. So the guy was not a Cohen or Cohen Gull in the regular sense. I mean, he was a Cohen, but he was busy fighting the battles of Claw. He throws, no question about it. Now, mind you, when he dies, which is five years after Hanukkah, hear what I said? Five years of Hanukkah. Because you see, Judah Maccabee is not a hero in the sense that they won the final victory like Hanukkah, hey, and then everything was over and they all lived happily ever after. And like Cincinnati, he retired to a, a farm or something like that, or to the, uh, applauded to the people. He didn't have that mazel. After the death of Judah, it says in the book, it came about that the lawbreakers, the Hellenists, began to show their heads all over the place, and all the wrongdoers sprang up, meaning the death of Judah was a joy for the non-from. At that time, there was a great famine, and so the country went over to the Hellenist side. You hear that? Because they had the food. Bacchides chose their religious men and put them rulers of the country. They diligently searched for the friends of Judah and brought them to Bacchides who tortured them and tormented them. Which means that they made a hit squad and they fingered all the guys who supported, all the from, that supported Judah, and they arrested them and they tortured them to death. With the result that there was such distress in Israel as had not been seen since prophets had ceased appearing to them. Which means that now came a worse uh, uh, persecution, shmad, of the from, worse than it had been before. So after the death of Judah, five years after Hanukkah, came the Iker Shmad, which is not something you're usually told. I'm just trying to show you, the image you have of Hanukkah is typically, it, unless you know the story, it's not an accurate one, because the things unfold in the way I just mentioned. There's Hanukkah, but then there's the five years after Hanukkah. And the only way situation was spared was because Judah's brother, Yonason, took over and eventually pulled things together. That's a, that's another story. Uh, may I say that the the uh, Yonason and then the Shimon uh, took another 20, 30, 40 years, I forget how long, till the Jews actually won and the Greeks pulled out and the Jews had their own state. It's actually passed Shimon into John Hyrcanus. So uh, the Maccabean state, the Hasmonean state, which was an independent Jewish state, uh, took place in the context of terrible bloody wars. It's not a time you wanted to live. Because this army or that army, everybody gets killed or wounded or maimed or sold into slavery or raped or persecuted. Eretz Israel was not the place to be. And uh, it was rough times. Okay? Sof, kol sof, kol sof, in the end, the happy ending. But until you got to that, was a lot of blood and sweat and tears. And so you see that Judah Maccabee appears as an interesting character in Jewish history. He was a gifted general. He actually... Uh, became a, a political leader in the sense of, of advocating for the first time in the history of Bayesheni uh, that, that the Jews need to have an independent state, not be part of somebody else's empire. Uh, it's easier said than done. The empire would not let go. You see, they sent army after army. And although he won the first rounds, in the end, they took him down. That's the story. Uh, he simply didn't have the, the military power to prevent them from reinvading, reinvading, re and recapturing Jerusalem. I told you, uh, after Bacchides, after Demetrius comes to king, which is two years, three years after Hanukkah, something like that, uh, the Greeks recapture the temple, and the Jews don't get it back for a while, not for a, not during the lifetime of Judah. And so, Hanukkah. I mean, what happened to the Mizbeach that was just nechnach? 
And what happens to, you know, Chanukah, uh, you know, all, all the, uh, the, the, the menorah and the, the, the miracle of the oil and all the rest of it, but the Greeks got it back. You understand? So it's, it's a strange uh, outcome. Let's put it that way. Uh, but he certainly was a hero, no question about that. And he's a from guy, you can tell from the way he fought and his speeches and all the rest of it. And he wasn't wrong in saying that the Greeks are absolutely untrustworthy and therefore you have to be a Zionist because of Ain Brera. You have to set up a Jewish independent state because of Ain Brera. Even though they didn't have a Malcolm based oven and all that sort of thing, is Ain Brera. If you're going to be theological about it, the way Ramban wants, the, the, the Greeks will walk all over you, they'll kill you. And 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 then nobody's going to keep Shabbos. So, you know, that way he was, but was he able to, uh, what's the right word, completely rescue the Jewish people from the Greek threat, all the rest of it? No, he, he started the process, and he clearly was a brilliant fighter, but not a brilliant fighter to the degree that he couldn't be defeated. In the end, he was defeated, and they took him down. You know see, In the end, they took him down. So uh, this is the historical Judah Maccabees, as far as we can tell from the first book of Maccabees. And the second book of Maccabees supplements this only a little bit. Okay? Only a little bit. So it's basically the same story. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, that he does not appear in Chazal. You know, saying Matisio is mentioned in Chazal, Matisio Bonov, but Judah per se, Tony Chazal. I mean, did they dislike him? I don't, I don't It's hard to tell. Uh, he seems to have been an admirable person. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, we only have the, the image that we have. But the historical Judah Maccabee is a complex uh, figure uh, in Jewish history. Um, one of the rare cases of a, of a successful Jewish general. We don't have too many of those. And I told you the other day, that's why Yosef was very popular, because he used to talk about the Maccabean victories, which were remarkable. But, you know, don't overdo it, because... Uh, Yes, temporarily. In the end, the Ma'atim fell into the hands of the Rabbim. And the Tahorim fell into the hands of the Tameim. I mean, they killed him. You know, so uh, you got to watch out for oversimplicity. That's all my point. Anyway, with that, I want to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah. As I said, maybe we'll find some sponsors for the rest of the week. Uh, I want to thank the Meyer family once again. And maybe, as I say, I do hope after I get back from Israel uh, that we can get together sometime here in Baltimore. And thank you for the sponsorship. And with that, I wish everybody, as I said before, a free Hanukkah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david